It's good to be back. It's been a minute. I missed you. I know I was still around, but I, I do miss preaching. Uh, we just had a, a baby not too long ago. Little Indy Ray. She's here today. Um, and we're just thankful. Yeah, we're thankful to be a part of a, I, I told some of our leadership that shows up early, I, I told them this morning, we're thankful to be a part of a church where I can take a, a, a season to just be with staff, to be with the kids, uh, to just kind of help get everybody acclimated again to this new baby life. Because I'll be honest, after the last one, we kind of thought we were done, but, you know, Jet, the older he got, the cuter he got, the funnier he got, we were just like, oh, let's do this again. Like, it's just so fun. And we love raising kids. Uh, we love raising kids to know Jesus, to do the best we can, to teach them to walk in his ways, to teach them that his word is a light onto their path. That's a heart for me in this season. I got a heart for fathers right now. And I believe God's given me a word for fathers, especially today. So if you're a dad, if you're thinking about becoming a dad, you and your wife are talking about it. Uh, maybe you've been a dad a long time. Maybe you're just about to become a dad in a couple months. We've got all kinds of new dads springing up in this church. God gave me a word for you today. But it's for the women too. Because let me tell you something. If you win the heart of the father, you win the family. There's stats on this. If you win the father to Christ, 97% of the time, my friend Nate, he just posted this, 97% of the time, the rest of the family will make a decision to follow after Jesus. Now, if you just win the mom or if you just win the kids, the percentages go way down on the entire family choosing to follow after Jesus. But if you can win the heart of the Father, you can win the entire family 97% of the time. I did youth ministry for a long time, and 12 years. And during that whole time, my mindset was, if I can just win these kids to know Jesus, we can win their entire family. And I'll tell you, the stats, the percentages, they're accurate. They don't, they don't lie. It was hard to win the entire family. We want a lot of kids to Jesus. In fact, a lot of you, there's a lot of people in this church today because you were a part of our youth ministry. You heard about Jesus. You accepted Jesus. You accepted his call on your life. But you know, you can kind of look around your family and you can see there's still a lot of work to go. But the great thing is there's some young men here today that, that you were one to Jesus during that time period. You came to know him. And maybe you haven't seen the fruit of that in your entire family, but he's starting a new line through you. You're gonna be the head and not the tail. Let me tell you something. Your family is gonna follow as you follow after Christ. That's a prophetic word for you today. You can take that, you can own that, you can live by that for you today. Follow after him and your family will follow. They'll chase after the Lord. I told you 1 Corinthians 13, 11, we're putting away childish things. That's been on my mind because recently I, I got together with some friends. And in my life, this group of friends, we've, we've been gathering together for years. We all went to college together. 
And there's a lot of these friends, we're, we're in church today. They play intricate key roles in leadership in our church today. We've done ministry together for a long time. When I was first in college, I, I got this internship to do youth ministry, and I just invited all my buddies from college to come with me and help be youth leaders. And so it, it was a fun season. We were just in our 20s. We were doing youth ministry. We played on a basketball team together. Uh, we made a lot of great memories. But now there's times, year after year, we've all kind of stayed close, stayed in the same area. And so we, we've made this commitment, hey, we're going to stay close. We're going to stay friends. And we would keep getting together. And every time we get together, what do you do when you get together with friends from the old days? You reminisce, right? You reminisce about the old days, and it never fails. Every time me and this group of friends from college, we get together, we look back on the old days and we tell stories and we laugh and we joke. And it hit me when I was about 27, 27 years old. Well, let me see. Harper, you're nine. Well, it's nine years ago from 36. Yeah, 27. Math. Math is hard. All right. Give me a break on math. About 27 years old. Harper was born, and I, I remember sometime after that, maybe I was 28 at this time, I remember getting together with this group of friends, and, and I remember just kind of sitting there, and, and we're reminiscing, and we're telling some of these stories, and, and, and there was a part of me, as we were talking about these stories, and I was thinking about this new life I was living in, how different this life as a dad and a husband and a pastor in a church was compared to who I used to be compared to how I used to live my life. And there was a part of me as this young, new 28-year-old dad that kind of looked back on these early days when I was in college and carefree and no kids and not married and just all these things. And I kind of looked back and I had these moments where I thought, man, I think I missed that period of my life. And I began to romanticize some of these early days of college over where God had me presently. And so this last time, just a week ago, when we'd gotten together, it, it never fails. When we get together, stories start to get shared, and we start talking and sharing and, and going through some of the old days. And, and they hit me different this time than they ever had before. As some of these stories are getting shared, and they're telling some of these stories, and and a lot of them involve me as maybe not the nicest person. Like, just so you know, I, here you go. Here's, you know, I, there's no secrets here at Revival. I thought I was nice. I thought I was a good person. I wasn't. Like, I was really, I just wasn't. But before I used to look back on those days and think, oh, yeah, I was great. I was fine. I was, you know, just like everyone else. And, and now I look back and I think, man, I was a child. Like, I was a child. Like, I, I was 21. I was 22 years old. I was in a position of leadership in a church. And I was a child. I hadn't put away childish things. And, and even as I started to go through my life and I started to think back all throughout my early 20s and my mid-20s, I, I kept looking back on some of those moments when I thought, oh, those were the good old days. Those were the best times. All of a sudden now at 36, hearing these stories I'm even ashamed that I used to think those were the good old days. I, I, I'm embarrassed. I hadn't put away childish things. 
And I still even had moments where I longed for the childish things because I had romanticized and built up these old days in my mind to this point where I thought that was the best period of my life. Sometimes for men especially, but I think for all of us, there's a period in your life that you think, that you look back on and you say, that's the perfect spot. And as I was processing through some of this, I kept thinking of a, a circuit breaker in our house. And I kept thinking, what, what is this, the, the, the circuit breaker when the power, when there's too much power running through an outlet, what happens? Your circuit breaker, it flips, right? It flips. And I kept thinking about these periods of time in my life, and I realized last week when I was looking back and hearing some of these stories, and I, I wasn't as proud of them as I used to be. I wasn't like, oh, yeah, that was funny. I was hilarious. You know, I used to think all these things. And now I was hearing these stories, and I was like, I was a, uh, you know, a donkey, all right? The other word. I was. And, and I realized that the circuit breaker in my life, it, it had broken at that time. Something had flipped in that time period and I got stuck mentally in that time period and thinking, that's who I am. That's my identity. That person of who I was in college, that's who I always want to be known as. That, that's who I want people to identify me as. I, I built up this identity while I was in college. I, I, I thought so highly of myself. I was in ministry. I played basketball. I, I did a lot of really funny pranks. I thought they were funny. I don't think they're funny anymore. I, I I lived as a child, but all throughout my 20s and even into my early 30s, I kept looking back at that time and thinking, that's who I am. That's, I love that person. I love who I was known as. I thought I had a good reputation. And amongst some people, I, I had people that liked me. I had friends, but I'd also made a lot of enemies. I'd also hurt a lot of people. I'd also offended a lot of people. I quenched the Holy Spirit at that time in my life. And, and I believe that's what had happened at that time. The Holy Spirit was trying to speak and tell me things at that period of my life. And, and I just got stuck. And the circuit breaker broke and, and it never got flipped back. And so I kept going back to that time period thinking that was the best time in my life. If I could go back at any period, I would go back right then and there. But in these last couple years, the Holy Spirit, he's flipped the breaker back on my life and the power got turned back on and I've started to learn to listen to his voice again and I realized I, I don't want to live in those childish things anymore. I don't want to glorify the childish things anymore. Most of that time period, I, I realized I was living constantly offended. And so what did I do? I tried to power up through my offense. Anytime somebody did something that I thought, hmm, that steps on my reputation, that's offensive to me, you should respect me, I demanded respect. That was the kind of person I was. And I was easily offended. But I didn't realize what offense was. I didn't realize what it meant to be easily offended or offendable. I just thought, no, I, I'm strong, I'm important. I, I had all these just self-grandizing thoughts going through my head. I said, and I, I deserve to be treated a certain way. You know, one story that keeps getting brought up a lot from this old college group of mine, my friends, they talk about this story to a lot of people. <laughs> and I used to laugh at it and think, oh yeah, that was funny. I don't laugh at it anymore. But I, 
I was a basketball player at a small school, 150 people, so I thought I was really important. I wasn't, okay? So I had a spot at the lunch table one day that I just got up to go get a drink, and somebody stole my spot while I was gone. And so I came over, and I you know, politely said to move, and he didn't move, and I said, I'm going to choke you out if you don't. <laughs> I choked this kid out at lunch. I know, and like, it was really terrible. You guys are like, wow, that's our pastor. I'm telling you, I'm confessing. I'm repenting. I'm repenting. And so, you know, I, he didn't go all the way out, but finally, you know, it was like, you know, I think some teacher came over and said, hey, can you not do that? I was like, all right. And so then I was like, well, I'll just prank him because that's how I dealt with offense. If somebody offended me, if somebody did something that, you know, ticked me off, or if I thought, oh, that's wrong, they shouldn't do that, I thought it was my job to bring justice. And so I thought, oh, I need justice. And so it was, you know, a cold day. I just, I, I think it was cold. I don't know if it was spring or summer, but I grabbed his mattress off his bed. I snuck into his room and I tucked his mattress all the way up on like a snowy hill. I think that's how it happened. And I just left it there. And I thought, there, I've been justified. And now I look back on that story and I think, wow, I was just, I was living in a constant place of offense in my life. And I thought it was my job to bring justice or, you know, to make, you know, things right, how I thought they should be made right. My iPad heated up. It's done. <laughs> That's all right. I know where I'm going. Thanks, man. So as we're going through what it really looks like to live from a place of offense, I, I want you to look with me at the story of Joseph. Go with me here, Genesis 37. This is when Joseph's a young kid. So Jacob settled again, 37 verse 1. So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan where his father had lived as a foreigner this is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, here he is, 17 years old. He often tended to his father's flocks. He worked for, half, for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Joseph thought it was his job to bring justice. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe, but his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. And I'm going to tell you something. In my life, I can relate to all of this. I thought God favored me more than others. But God is no respecter of persons. One night, Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. His brothers responded, so you think you will be our king? Do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Soon Joseph had another dream, and again he told his brothers about it. Listen, I've had another dream, he said. The sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed low before me. This time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? 
But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. His brothers were offended. Go on here, verse 18, 37, 18. So because of their offense, they decide it's up to them to take justice into their own hands. That's what they do here. You've offended us, so we're going to take care of you. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard of this scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. They grabbed him. They threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Then just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and an aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites were, who were Midianite traders came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and they sold him for 20 pieces of silver and the traders took him to Egypt. This is what they did. From a place of offense, they took justice into their own hands. Some of you today, you've been offended. Somebody has hurt you. Somebody has done something to you. And there's that temptation to take justice into your own hands. There's that temptation to live from that place of offense and to let offense be what drives you. But all offense does is build up offense. Like that's all offense does. It builds up offense. And that offense it blocks you from hearing from God. It blocks you from hearing from the Holy Spirit. So if you are offended, let me tell you something. You might be offended right now and you might be thinking, I know exactly what to do. I'm gonna go and tell everyone about it. That's what I really believe the Holy Spirit wants me to do. No, no, no. If you're coming from a place of offense, you're not hearing from the Holy Spirit because offense will block the Holy Spirit from speaking into your life. I wasn't hearing the Holy Spirit clearly in my life. There were times he would try to get my attention, but the circuit breaker, it had broken, and I wasn't really listening to him anymore. I was listening to myself. I was listening to the flesh. I was listening to my own soul, my own desires, what I wanted, and I was living from that place. And so anytime somebody offended me, I thought, I'm in the right, they're in the wrong, and it's up to me to make this right. One of the things I would do constantly is I would go and tell everyone about somebody else's wrong. Let me tell you something. To give up offense, to break down those walls that offense builds around your heart from hearing the Holy Spirit, it means you have to get to a place of total forgiveness. It means no matter what the person has done, you make a choice to let that person off the hook. And right now you're thinking, you don't know what they did. You don't know how they hurt me. You don't, you don't understand. Yeah, I do. I know. 
Trust me, I, I lived from a place of offended constantly 24-7. And, and I didn't think, I didn't think I was. Until somebody comes alongside you and helps to point it out or to show it to you, it's hard to see offense in our own lives. We only see self-righteousness. We, we only see from our own angle, and we can only see and hear what we want to hear and see in those seasons. Sometimes you need somebody to come alongside you and show you, no, 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 you're coming from a place where you are offended. Don't let that control and drive you. Those brothers, they let offense drive them. Joseph, I, I'm going to sum up the story. You've probably heard it before. He, he gets sold into slavery. He goes to Potiphar's house. And from there, things don't go so well. He ends up in jail. And then from there, he helps a couple guys interpret dreams. And he thinks, okay, good. Now I'm finally going to get out of here. They're going to they're give a good word to the Pharaoh. And they're going to get me out of here. And the guy forgets about him for years that he gave this dream interpretation to. Constantly in Joseph's life, it would have been so easy for him to live from a place of offense, to hold on to all those things. But let me tell you something. His entire family line, they lived from a place of offense. His entire family, they lived from a place of constantly offended. And what did God do? God shut the circuit off intentionally. And then he separated Joseph from that family so he could be healed and made whole to be able to live out the purposes God had called and created for him on his life. Sometimes the best thing that can happen to us is if the circuit breaks, but eventually we got to let God turn it back on. And we got to stop trying to do it by ourselves and do it the way we want to do it. And we got to start doing it his way. And so through all these moments of Joseph's life where he could have held on and lived in that place, he chose to follow after God and he chose total forgiveness. That's what we see here. When you go on, Joseph's brothers eventually during the famine, they have to go. And they have to go to Egypt to get food. What's that next verse for me, Jake? Uh, Genesis 43, is that where I'm at? 45. Genesis 45 here. Worship team, we're going to close it out here if you guys want to come up as we get ready. This is where we have this moment. Genesis 45, 1 through 8. Where Joseph... If he'd been holding on to a fence all these years, this is the perfect payback moment. This is his chance. He's got power. He's got control. He, he's second in Egypt now, only to Pharaoh. It would be really easy to have that moment of saying, I got you. I told you. I was right. You were wrong. If he was still living from a place of offense. 45 verse 1, Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, out all of you. So then he was alone with his brothers, the same brothers that put him in that cistern all those years ago, that sold him into slavery, that told his dad he was dead. And now he's alone with them in the room to tell them who he was. He broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him. And word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. He said, I'm Joseph. 
Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and all the governor of all Egypt. That's total forgiveness. When you can get to a place where you have completely let those who have offended you, those who have hurt you, those who have wounded you, when you can completely let them off the hook and you can see and realize throughout all of that, God's hand was on your life because he works all things together for the good of those who love him. Joseph knew and understood this. He wasn't still working and moving and living out of a place of hurt and offense and I believe it took all those years as a slave and as a prisoner for him to finally get to this place. I believe that he still struggled many of those years with those thoughts and those ideas. And it wasn't until he got to a place where he had totally forgiven that God said, now you're ready. Some of you, you, you know God's got a call on your life. He's created you for a purpose. He's created you to do incredible, amazing things in his kingdom. And you keep asking, why, why am I not there yet? God, I just want to be there. I want to do it. I'm ready now. And he said, no, no, no. You still got offense in your heart. You still got unforgiveness in your heart. <clears throat> Today's a day to let that go. Today's a day to let that person that hurt you, that person that wounded you, to let them completely off the hook. And it doesn't mean you gotta go call them up and say, hey, I forgive you. They, a lot of times they might not even know or realize that they hurt you. But you just have to let it go and release it and say, God, I, I trust your hand on my life and I trust what you're doing. My prayer is that it wouldn't take 17 years as a slave, as a prisoner. There's a reason he was a slave and a prisoner physically because he was a slave and a prisoner during those years spiritually. That's what happens when we're offended. We're the slave. We are the prisoner to our unforgiveness. We think we're holding something over these people. We think, no, 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 I got them right where I want them. I'm going to hold this over them the rest of their life. I'm going to control them. I'm going to control the situation. If they ever come begging to me, they, then they better beg. They better beg for forgiveness. <coughs> I'm going to make them earn it. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's not. Release that today. Give it all back to the Father. Put those childish things away. That's what unforgiveness and bitterness is. It's childish. He gives us a real picture of what love is. This is where Joseph, he finally got to. 
In that whole passage there, 1 Corinthians 13, not just verse 11, Paul tells us what real love is. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. Joseph could have demanded his own way. He could have demanded an apology. He could have demanded whatever he wanted from his brothers when they came back begging for food. He demanded nothing. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It keeps no record of offense. Real love releases everything. Real love lets every person, no matter who they are, what they've done, it lets them off the hook. That's the love of Jesus. That's the love he's shown us and he's called us to show to others. That's the call on our life as believers. To forgive as we've been forgiven. To let those off the hook the same way that he let us off the hook on the cross. That's what he did. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Joseph rejoiced in his life because he knew the truth had won out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. We're putting childish things behind us today. We're letting everyone that's ever hurt us off the hook today in the name of Jesus. That's real forgiveness. That's total forgiveness. And there's healing in that. And so if you're a dad today, I want you to know you've been let off the hook. Jesus, he let you off the hook when he got on the cross. Let your kids off the hook. As you parent, don't hold those things over them. Don't hold those mistakes. Don't hold those moments over them and say, this is who you were. This is what you did. You've always been this way. No, no, let your kids off the hook and let Jesus do a work in their hearts and their minds and their souls. Let him renew their spirit. Walk in total freedom today. If you need someone to pray with today, our, our prayer team will be over here by this tent with these kids. We're going to raise up a next generation of kids that don't live offended, that don't live bitter, that live in complete and total freedom. In this church, we're going to see that. We're going to see an entire generation grow up that doesn't even know what offense looks like because all they know is total forgiveness and letting those who hurt them off the hook the same way they've been let off the hook by Jesus Christ. So if you need prayer today, we'll be over here during this last worship song. We'll be over here afterwards. Jesus wants to let you off the hook today. Let him do a work in you.